Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Relationships. Relationships are built on trust. Trust is the grease in the wheels of every human relationships with your spouse, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, with your bestie, with your BFF, with your boss, with your coworkers. Trust is what keeps things moving in relationships. You might even say that relationships live and die on the altar of trust. So when trust is high, things are going really well in your relationship. But when trust is low, well, relationships struggle. You know, I think many of us have been told that all you need is love in your relationships. Truth be told, that's just nostalgic nonsense. Love is crucial. It is. It's foundational. But love is not all you need. You can love somebody, but if you don't trust them, then that relationship is going south fast. So love is not enough. I think Tina Turner sang it best. She said, what's love got to do with it, right? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? You can almost hear her singing, I wish I had a wig. Okay, so you can love somebody, but if you continue to break trust with that person, then your relationship has a real problem. It's like the story of the boy who cried wolf. You're familiar with that story. People liked the boy, they respected the boy, respected him enough to give him a good job, but he kept breaking trust with everybody by pretending to see a wolf and waking up the village in the middle of the night. Wolf, wolf, he cried. And over time, as he continued to do that, what happened? He continued to erode trust with the rest of the villagers. So when the wolf finally did show up, nobody rallied to help him. You know, trust is really a funny thing because with trust, it usually gets gained slowly, but we can lose trust in a heartbeat. Most of you know what I'm talking about. Just stab somebody in the back or lie to somebody, or cheat on somebody, you'll know that trust is lost very, very quickly. Relationships, all relationships are built on trust. So what about our relationship with God? Does trust matter in that relationship? What if you think that God cannot be trusted? You see, this is actually the fundamental question lurking behind the text in Romans 9 to 11. The question is, can God be trusted? And today, we are starting in a new section of Romans. This is uncharted territory for many of us. You see, Romans 9 to 11, it's, it's kind of like the, it's like the crazy uncle of Bible passages, right? We don't really like to talk about it a lot because if we do talk about it a lot, it usually you know, confuses a lot of people and leads to a whole lot of controversy. So we'd much rather jump from Romans 8 all the way over to Romans chapter 12 and skip 9 to 11. And I agree, shortcuts are always easier. I mean, isn't it better to cross a field rather than to traverse your way through the mountains to get to the same destination? But here's the thing, if you take the shortcut, you might just miss the view. And so it is with Romans 9 to 11. So over the next few weeks, we're going to Stick to the trail, even if it means a bit of bushwhacking, if it means climbing some hills, even if it means grinding through dense foliage, we are going to make our way through Romans chapter 9 to 11. Romans 9 picks up on this issue of trust. You see, some people in the church were beginning to wonder if God had broken his promises. They were beginning to question what we would call God's righteousness. 
You know, righteousness is a kind of an overarching theme in the book of Romans. We've talked about this before. And, and it's not just our righteousness that it talks about. It talks about God's own righteousness. Paul says this right at the beginning of the letter, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. They are the theme verses. They are the key verses for the entire book of Romans. Here's what he says. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, so Paul is writing this letter, and it's about the righteousness of God. It's about God's own righteousness. And he's saying that the gospel, this great news, this good news, the best news ever about Jesus, helps to reveal God's own righteousness. That's why, actually, we've called the series The Unveiling, if you didn't know before. We believe that the deeper we go into the gospel, the more that we can begin to see and understand the righteousness of God. So what is God's righteousness? And why does it cause trust issues with God's people? Well, righteousness was a very Jewish concept. To say that God is righteous means two things. On the one hand, it means that God is just and he's fair. But on the other hand, it also means that God keeps his promises in all his dealings with his people. And some people in the church were starting to question God's righteousness. And this questioning centered around the place of Israel in God's plan. Now, you'll know this, this about Israel. You remember this. Paul talks about it in the first few verses in, in this chapter. Israel was God's covenant people. God promised Abraham. He said, Abraham, you know what? I'm going to make you into a great nation. God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, and he brought them into a covenant relationship. He actually came to dwell among them in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were a holy nation. They were set apart, and they were called to be a lighthouse to all the other nations in the world. God promised Israel also that the Messiah would come ultimately through the nation and the people of Israel. But now, there was a problem. Jesus, the promised Messiah, had come. And not a lot of Jews were actually turning to him and starting to follow him. And instead, all of these Gentiles were turning around and beginning to follow after Jesus the Messiah in great numbers. In fact, in the church in Rome, the number of Gentiles far outnumbered the number of Israelites, Jewish people. So this left people kind of scratching their heads. They're like, God, what happened? What's going on here? I mean, did God break his promise to Israel? Did God make a mistake, right? And it just kind of changed his mind. Or, or had God, you know, just kind of been making things up as he goes along, like a lost parent trying to plan a family vacation? Or was all of this like just some, some great big cosmic bluff, right? Just some kind of a bait and switch, kind of like a timeshare presentation, right? Come on in, have some free pizza, go watch the whales. By the way, you have to stay here for three or four hours to listen to this presentation and, and buy something that you can never afford, Right? Or a youth group pizza party. Come on in. Free pizza. We're going to tell you about Jesus. Okay, so it's a kind of a bait and switch. This is not what we signed up for. So what's at stake in Romans 9 is God's own righteousness. Is God good? And is God fair? Does God keep his promises? Ultimately, can God be trusted? Have you ever asked that question before? Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted through a pandemic? Can God be trusted through climate change? Can God be trusted through Edmonton snowstorms? Can God be trusted when my kids are stuck at home yet again? Can God be trusted? 
And so Paul begins this chapter with, with a little bit of a confession. He says, you know what, I get it. I, I empathize with you. I know you feel this way because I feel the same way. He says, I wish that my fellow Israelites would, would turn to Jesus the Messiah. As a matter of fact, it's killing me inside. I, I wish I could take their place. I'd do anything I possibly can to change this. I get it. But then after that, Paul takes a moment and he says, you know what, I want to I tackle the problem. I want to answer some of these questions that you might have. And so for the rest of the chapter, he spends time doing this. He grapples with three questions. Three questions that he assumes that his listeners are asking. Some of these are explicit, some of them are implied. But they're three questions that are kind of all linked together. They actually kind of follow naturally one from the other. So what I want to do is I want to walk through the questions this morning. And I want to see how Paul answers them. I invite you to do that with me. And at the end of it all, let's determine together whether or not God is trustworthy. So here's the first question. It's implied in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The question is, has God's word failed? Has he kept his promises to Israel? And Paul's point right away is just to point out a difference. He says, I, I just want to point something out here. There is a difference between biological Israel and true Israel. So it's true that God promised Abraham that he and his offspring would become a mighty nation. That's true. There's no doubts about that. But does that mean that this includes every single one of Abraham's descendants? So Paul says, first of all, let's talk about Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn, right? He was, he was the son of Hagar, the, 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 uh, Abraham's servant, the slave woman. He was also the oldest, so he actually had the right of inheritance. However, technically, God's promise was to Abraham and to Sarah. You can read that in the text. So because of that, Isaac's line was chosen and not Ishmael's, even though Ishmael had the right of, of being the firstborn. And it wasn't because Ishmael was born to a servant girl, but it was because God made a promise. He made a promise to Sarah and to Abraham, and God keeps his promises. So what Paul's saying is, listen, I mean, you can't say that every physical descendant of Abraham is part of Israel. And there is a difference between biological Israel and true Israel. And then Paul moves on. He says, you know, I want to invite you to consider Jacob and Esau, right? These twins, they're born at the same time. They were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Esau came out first. So who should have been the chosen one? It should have been Esau, but who was the chosen one? It was Jacob. As a matter of fact, God made this decision before they were even born. The older would serve the younger. And so God chose the younger Jacob over Esau. And Paul's pointing out just this simple fact. He says, you know what? It's by God's choice and God's choice alone. It had nothing to do with Jacob's behavior, okay, good or bad, because we know that Jacob was a little bit of a trickster, right? But ultimately, it was based on God's choice, not human merit. So God does what God does. Now, you probably noticed something that Paul had written in verse 11. And it's pretty important. So let me just read it for you this morning. Here's what it says. It says, Though they were not yet born, it's talking about the twins, and had done nothing, either good or bad, it's not about their merit or good behavior, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. What does that mean? What does it mean by purpose of election? Well, the word election is like one of those big Bible words, and it has stirred up a lot of conversation over the years, and it's this word that actually makes Romans chapter 9 that crazy uncle. 
It's what makes it a controversial chapter for people. The word election basically means chosen or choosing, okay? So don't think of like the Canadian elections where everybody has a ballot. Don't think about that. There's only one vote here, and the vote is God, and it's about choosing or being chosen. And it refers to how God chooses people or the church as a whole to receive his salvation. So it it tries to explain the extent to which we choose God or to which God chooses us. And there are different camps that have different beliefs about this. The two most notorious ones are, of course, Calvinists and Armenians. And you're maybe from a church tradition uh, that might choose either of those. And, and that's very strong within your church tradition and your experience in reading the text. And I bless you for that. That's great. Um, uh, in our own denomination, we kind of hold that loosely and we let people decide for themselves where they're at, whether they're more Calvinist or Armenian. Um, But Calvinists would lean strongly towards it's God's choice, God's election, God calls everybody, and Armenians would lean a little bit more towards human free will and God seeing into the future and just living by the human's free will around this issue. Now, you may wonder, where do I land on this issue? And my answer is, I'm not going to tell you. No, I will. Um, But I just want to acknowledge the tension this morning, and so my apologies to the armchair theologians who are hoping for some a little bit of doctrinal sparring this morning. It's not going to happen, okay? But I would like to suggest this. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is actually not really addressing the problem of individual election. If you read the text, you might come to this conclusion. Paul is wrestling with actually how God elects Israel as a whole and then the Gentiles. So Paul here is talking more about corporate election rather than individual people election. And I think that this understanding is consistent if you read the rest of Romans, if you understand the cultural context of Judaism in Paul's day and how this conversation was continuing around him, um, as well as if you look at the Old Testament understanding of election, it's more corporate than it is individual, almost without exception. So this text is more about corporate election than about individual election. And I think um, Paul is saying that God's election plan for Israel as a whole must continue. And God's purpose of election will continue in Israel, but also through Israel. So it's not driven by biology. It's not driven by what people do, good or bad. It's ultimately about God's call. It's about God's will. It's his plan. And God is going to do what God is going to do. Now, thank you for those of you who are not really interested about Calvinism or Armenianism for tuning in for this little theological sidebar. But uh, it has to be addressed if we're going to talk about Romans chapter 9. And we can have a great conversation about that later, a little bit of theological sparring. Okay, second question. Is God unjust? This is the second question. So after all, I mean, Jacob was a trickster, right? Uh, he, he, he stole his birthright from his brother. He hoodwinked his father-in-law to get what he wanted, a little bit extra flocks, right? But it says that God actually loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. So what's with that? I mean, like, is, isn't that just kind of arbitrary on God's behalf? I mean, how is that fair that God would actually do that, that he would love this guy more than the other guy? Um, but what Paul wants to point out is that this is actually consistent with how God has worked in the past. There's nothing strange about this. This is how God's calling works. So, for example, God showed mercy to Israel when they didn't deserve it. This was part of his plan of election. You know, after the Exodus, you know, let me know the story, right? Israel came to Mount Sinai, 
And when they got there, Moses went up on the mountain. Israel stayed down below. Israel got tired of waiting, right? So what did they do? They created their own God. They created this, this idol, this golden calf, right? Meanwhile, Moses is up on the mountain. While he's up there, God's like, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out. God, uh, Moses pleads with God. And as a result of that, God relents. Moses comes down from the mountain, right? He's got the, the Ten Commandments with him, written on the tablets of stone. Sees people having like a rave party, dancing around this golden calf, and he, he's furious, right? Smashes those things. And then he goes and he, and he you know, causes mayhem for the people of Israel. I won't get into that right now, but uh, he, uh, he, he takes the idol, he burns it, he grinds it, and then he makes everybody drink it. Mixes it with water. That's crazy, right? Like, what is that all about? Is that like the introduction of church juice for the first time ever? You know, the tang stuff? I don't know. But then God says, you know, I'm not even going to go with you. I'm not even going to go with you into the promised land. I'm going to let you go. But if I come along, I might get so angry with you. I might get so furious with Israel that I'm just going to wipe them off the map. And Moses pleads with God. God relents. And then God agrees that he's going to go with Moses. And in that time, this is where we find the verse, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. And Paul quotes it in Romans 9. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And what that means is, is that God's, God's call, God's election, is not disrupted by human failure. In fact, God can actually work through human rebellion to accomplish his purposes to Israel. God is not thwarted by human rebellion. And then Paul uses another example. Not only can God show mercy to whoever he wants, he also can harden whoever he wants. And this is the hardest part of the text. God's people had been in slavery for 400 years. You know the story. Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. God says to Moses and to Aaron, he says, listen, I want you to go and confront Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. And I'm going to do all sorts of signs and wonders to convince Pharaoh to do this. But I'm also going to harden Pharaoh's heart every single step of the way. And that's exactly what God did. He continued to harden Pharaoh's heart. The, and, and as a result of this, this actually furthered God's plan of election. Because every time that Pharaoh refused, a greater miracle happened. A greater miracle happened. And this is what we find in the text. What Paul is saying, he's saying that the more Pharaoh hardened his heart, the greater God's miracles got, and the more God's greatness got proclaimed throughout the world. That God actually, through the hardening of Pharaoh, used him to accomplish his purpose and his plans for his own namesake and for his people, Israel. Then Paul asks the third question. Is God right to condemn? And this is probably the question that most of us would ask. If God can harden whoever he wants, then how can Israel be held accountable? I mean, at the final judgment, I mean, could God really then blame anybody for what they've done? After all, God made us do it. We can't resist him. We didn't have a choice. We're like, we're like puppets or robots or, or pawns in some great cosmic chess game. How can we be held accountable for what God made us do? And so Paul says this. He says, can pottery say to a potter, why have you made me like this? So he's, he's saying this, this is a ridiculous notion we're proposing. Pottery shouldn't talk back to its maker. How can anyone question God in this way? Now, by the way, I'm, I'm not sure, has, has anyone seen the, the, the new Marvel movie, the uh, the Eternals? Who's seen The Eternals? Anyone? Anyone? Not a lot. Wow, I'm about to spoil it for you. No, I'm not. I won't spoil it for you. You may never want to see it. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I encourage you, if you get the chance, when you read Eternals, before you, when you watch Eternals, before you watch it, read Romans chapter 9. 
watch Eternals, and then read Romans chapter 9 again. Um, the movie's kind of okay. Okay, it's meh, okay. Um, no spoilers, uh, but there are these beings that are created in the story. Some are created for good purposes. Some are created for bad purposes. So you've got the Eternals, who are the good purposes, and the Deviants, who are the bad purposes. And they are under the control of this brilliant, powerful, celestial being who has created them, right? And the story toys with these tensions between the divine will of this being and the free will of these agents, right? So I encourage you to do it because this is the tension that we find in Romans chapter 9. I encourage you to watch it. The tension is between God's will, the divine, who can do anything and get you to do anything, and human will, free will, and accountability. So I'll leave that with you. Um, thank you, Disney. Yeah, I just made you some money. Okay. Um, now, if we really want to understand what Paul means here, though, we can't miss the underlying story of what's going on behind the text. Because I think a lot of times we read it at face value, but we don't understand that Paul's actually quoting from the Old Testament when he says these words. Um, so if you trace his quotations back, you'll find yourself in the prophet Isaiah, and you'll find yourself in the prophet Jeremiah. And what you'll discover there, when God talks about the clay and he talks about the potter, He's not talking about individual humans like you and I. He's actually talking about Israel and his dealings with Israel. And in those texts, Israel is the clay and God is the potter. And what you gather as you read those texts is that God was gently molding Israel with his own hands all the time. He's been doing that since the beginning. But Israel refused to be shaped by God. They questioned God at every step. Ultimately, they rebelled against God. And so then God did what God needed to do. Israel's rebellion ultimately led to God's just wrath, especially in the, if you read it in Isaiah. Jerusalem was sieged. The people of God went into exile. And as they went into exile, God began to cut them down. They began to die off. They began to ex uh, experience God's um, just discipline as a result of that. And through the exile, God created a remnant. Through the exile, only a remnant of Israel ultimately remained. So a small minority of Israel was preserved as a result of that. And so this, this actually makes sense when we get to Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 23. This is what Paul's talking about. Let me read it for you. He says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath to Israel and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, Israel, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, the church, the people of God, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, Israel was a failed clay vessel, not worth keeping, ready to be tossed out. But God didn't destroy Israel. What was he? He was patient with them. He endured with them. And we discover later on in verse 25 to 29, if you read the rest of it, is that God preserved a remnant of Israel. That was his plan, his, his plan all along in his election. And out of that remnant, out of that remnant of Israel that survived and that made it, God called out his Messiah, Jesus. You see, God always had a purpose and plan for Israel, and that plan was to create a new covenant people through Jesus the Messiah, who would be God's chosen people in the world. This included not only the Jews, Paul said, but it also included the Gentiles. Brilliant. 
brilliant of what God is able to do and how is he is able to steer human rebellion and folly towards his ultimate purposes. And not just an individual person, but a nation of people. God can do this. So did God's word fail? Paul is saying a resounding no. He never intended that every descendant of Israel would be saved. That was never part of his plan. God's plan of an election was never blocked or hindered by Israel's good or bad behavior. That couldn't stop him. And God was able to work through Israel's rebellion, through the rebellion, ultimately to accomplish his plan. And so what Paul is saying is, I know you're concerned about this, but God is righteous. God keeps his promises to Israel. His call is sure. He's clearly in control of history. Now, I want us to consider this this morning, friends. If God can change the course of history over thousands of years, do you think that he is no longer in control during a pandemic? Do you think that God is daunted by the winds of cultural change? Is there a problem in your life that is too small for God to handle? God is in control. God keeps his promises. And if that is true, then surely God can be trusted. So what might that trust look like? What does it mean to live in a trust relationship with God? Let me suggest a couple of things this morning. First of all, be willing to be molded. Be willing to be molded. You know, sometimes we don't understand how God works. Sometimes we even disagree with how God works. It's easy to question God when God isn't following our plans. It's, it's easy to do that when God's values clash with our own values. But let me consider this. As reasonable people, okay, just as a reasonable person, is it reasonable to reject God just because you don't agree with him? Can the pottery say to the potter, why are you doing this to me? Why are you asking me to live this way? You know, in 1948, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay uh, about the challenges of sharing the gospel in his day. And ultimately, they got put into a book. The book was called God in the Dock. His chapter was called God in the Dock, where this essay was preserved. It's a great essay. And he talks about God being in the dock. And, and, and in British law, the dock is where the criminal sits. If you're a criminal in the British courts, you go and you sit in the dock. The bench is where the judge sits. The judge sits on the bench. And Lewis was saying that, that somehow the roles had gotten reversed in his day. And here's what he writes. He says, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. Well, for the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. And he's, he's quite, he is quite a kindly judge. I mean, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. God was in the dock in Lewis's day. God is still in the dock today. And you know what? The, the accusations will continue to keep getting stacked up against him. If it's not the new atheists, if it's not critical theorists, we continue to put God in the dock. How can God be so judgmental? How can God allow suffering? How can God say that he wants to define my identity? And, and it's easy for us to get, kind of get pulled along with the tide of culture to put God in the dock, to accuse the potter, 
But here's something to consider. How can God ultimately be God if God is not in charge? If God actually has to follow our rules, if he has to kowtow to cultural whims, is God really all-powerful? Is God really all-knowing? See, the moment we put our constraints on God, that's the moment that God stops ultimately being God. And he's not a God worth following, quite frankly. If God's not God, he's not worth following. It brings me to mind Psalm 115, verse 3. Here's what it says. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. The truth of the matter is, there is a God, and I am not him. And there is a God, and you are not him. He is the potter, I am the clay. God is not made in my image, I am made in God's image. And he is reforming me and reshaping me to become more and more like him. So if it's true, friends, all this is true, as reasonable people, and I know some of us, including myself, often act unreasonably, But as reasonable people, if it is true that you are the clay, are you willing to be molded? Are you willing to trust God in this way? Will you let him shape your life? Where in your life right now do you need to trust God the most? How else can we live in a trust relationship with God? This is the last point. Be thankful to be included. You know, I'm guessing that probably most of us here are Gentiles. Some of you might be of Jewish descent. That's awesome. Okay, but most of us are probably Gentiles. Gentiles are a pretty broad category. It's, it's a, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe, right? Wherever, wherever you're from. But we're all, we're all part of that. We're all part of God's family through faith in Christ. And it's because God has chosen to include both Jews and Gentiles into his covenant people. This is God's election. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. But God, in his great compassion and mercy, has chosen to include us. And this was God's plan since the beginning. I don't know about you, but I kind of like being included. I don't like being excluded so much. I like being included. You know, I was thinking the other day about elementary school. And in elementary school, after school, we would always have these baseball games when it was warm outside. And uh, you always had to figure out how you're going to pick the teams, right? Some of you remember these days? Hmm? How do you pick the teams? Well, one way that you can do it is you just kind of get everybody to line up, and then you pick the teams, you number them off. One, two, one, two, one, two. And typically that didn't work well because oftentimes one team was way better than the other team. Just because just you line up by height doesn't mean you're a good baseball player. There's a lousy way to do it. So there's another way to do it. The other way to do it is to choose captains. You pick a couple captains, and then they get to pick the teams. And you remember how that worked, right? The best players got chosen first. The worst players got chosen last. And you were just praying that you were not the what? The last person chosen. That was awful to be the last person chosen. I wasn't a great baseball player. I played football, basketball, so I was chosen somewhere in the middle so I was safe. But I can just remember like the sweaty palms sitting there on the sideline just waiting in elementary school. Am I going to get picked? Am I going to pick me, pick me, include me? And I thought to myself, well, what if they changed that? Because in my day after school, I mean, I grew up in the east side of Moose Jaw. There wasn't a whole lot to do. There were no video games back then, okay? Just only two kids had a video game machine. So we played a lot of sports outside. There were a lot of kids there. We always had more than enough 
kids to field two baseball teams. So we had like eight people in the outfield on every team. We had way too many players. So what if they changed the rules? What if they changed the selection process? What if instead they decided we're only going to field 18 players and everybody else doesn't get selected? They have to go home. Or have to sit on the sidelines. Or they have to get water for the rest of the team. But they don't get selected. They don't get included. If you were the last player of those 18 players to get selected, how would you feel? I think you'd feel a whole lot better than the last player who got selected in the other process. Why? Because you got included. Sure, you might have been picked last, but you did get included, and you got to play in the game. And Paul says that we have been included in God's great plan of salvation. We were elected, we were chosen to be part of God's covenant people, his team. If you are a Gentile, you are among those who were picked last, but you're still included. Not because of what you've done, not because you're some stellar star baseball player, but because of God's great compassion for us and because he has chosen us to be vessels of his mercy. That's what the text says. Let me ask you, are you thankful to be included today? God says to us, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on who I have compassion. God has chosen us as vessels of his mercy to receive his mercy and to be agents of his mercy. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Jesus Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. To quote N.T. Wright, it's not about race, it's all about grace. And so I think it's appropriate that we finish today by simply singing about God's great mercy. I think it's appropriate that we would sing our guts out in thanksgiving for God, to God, for all he's done. So I want to invite the band to come. We're going to sing a last, final song together in worship and praise for God's mercy. Why don't we stand? I'll invite the band. Let's pray. Father, I thank you we can stand before you because of your great love for us. You've invited us in as your children and that you are with us and you're in us. God, we want to trust you with our whole lives. And we ask you today to just, just forgive us for always questioning you or thinking that we know better or choosing our path and not your path. God, would you forgive us for that? You are the God who has made all things. You are the God who has changed the course of history just by your own purpose and your calling. And so we want to trust you today. Why don't we take a moment, Crosspoint, and just speak to God about the area where you need him to trust him the most today. And just lay before him in glad surrender your trust and give it to him. I'm going to pause for just a second.
thank you, Lord, that you can be trusted. We trust you. Thank you for including us. Thank you for your welcome. We want to sing now of your mercy, your great, great mercy for us. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.